So, we are in Romans 7 and 8 tonight, um, which is a little bit ambitious, but I think we're going to do well with it. Next week, we're going to do the same thing with 9 and 10, and then for two weeks after that, we'll stay with a chapter a week each. Now, last week, I, I noted, and I want to renote that uh, once again, we have changed schedules, and I do have hard copies of the now third version of our schedule, and the change is that um, the May second date, which was an FX date, um, is no longer an FX date. They're not doing that in May, so we have no conflicts, so we will be meeting next week, that's May 2nd, uh, instead of taking a break next week. So we're going to go ahead and meet straight through, and if I can stay on schedule, that means that we will end with the last Tuesday of May instead of going into gym. Um, I am hoping to do a class in the summer as well, probably take a week or two off, and then. but I'm looking right now at you know, what will fit in that time frame. So if any of you are interested in doing a Bible class in the summer, let me know. And for that matter, if you've got suggestions on, uh, on books or... I, I don't do subject classes. Um, I, I want to do exegetical work on Tuesday nights so that it continues to get us into the Word and used to simply reading through and understanding. But I will do portions of, for example, one, one year we did uh, John 14 to 17, the farewell discourse. One year we did the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Um, so for the longer books, there's certainly nothing wrong with taking sections of them and working through them. So if you've got su suggestions, let me know. If anybody listening to this, um, preferably let me know more than like a year or two from now um, so that we can plan in advance. Okay? So tonight is 7 and 8. Do you have any questions, any words, any, any anything you want to make sure we cover as we go through this? Question number six. The question is, how does sin deceive us? Okay. Principle. You should have the right study guide. All of you who have the wrong one, you should go get a right one. This is for this week. So if anybody else needs one, pass them around. You're looking for a study guide or did you have a question? Okay, there they are. All right, any other questions, words, etc.? Questions. 
All right, I'm going to take that as a no. <clears throat> so we have a lot of text to go to. If you have any other questions come up or if there's words, and again, folks, I'm choosing words, but that doesn't mean that those are the only ones that will help you understand. So as you're studying through, if there's words that you find significant or words that you're, you're saying, you know what, I'm, I looked that up, not sure what that word is about or, or why is it in that, why is it used there, whatever, by all means, bring those out. One of the questions that I don't hear listened to a lot or, or stated a lot, in fact, I don't think I've heard it yet in this series, is on this one, question 14, and that is, what question or questions would you add to this study guide? So be thinking about those things because one of the goals of what we're doing is that all of us would be capable of going to the Word, studying the Word effectively, coming up with our own questions, looking at words we know are significant and looking them up on our own because so many people instead rely on some other study guide. And I can't tell you how many times people have said, well, I want to study the Bible, but I don't, I don't know where a good study guide is. And, and there's something wrong with that, okay? So even my study guides, as wonderful as I'm sure they are, you don't have to have those to study the Bible. The Bible is what you have to have to study the Bible, okay? All right. So chapter 7 says, or, okay, now again, whenever you start with something like that, You've got to go back. So at the end of chapter 6, Paul makes a statement. He says, starting in verse 20, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. Now, that sounds insidious. God gave the law, and he gave the law so that transgression or sin would increase. Is God invested in sin increasing? Is that what he's saying? But in the context, what Paul has said is, no, this allows us to see sin and therefore to repent of it. This allows us to see the, the nature of sin, to see the consequences of sin, to take it seriously and to do something about it. So, he says, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, whoa. I'm sorry, that's actually the end of five, isn't it? How come none of you were going yelling at me and stuff? No, I scrolled and it went and went through a whole chapter instead of a couple of lines. Because I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for the, the phrase that I was waiting to hear, and it wasn't coming up, I think. Okay, something's wrong there. So, that actually is not a bad thing to look at, because chapter 5, is, in that section of chapter 5, kind of gives a summary of what those, really, 4, 5, and 6 were all about. That, that Paul is talking about the nature of sin, and how sin leads us to grace. Remember who Paul is. Paul is, quote, the Pharisee of Pharisees. That's his own self-description. He's the guy who is an authority on the law. And yet now he says, no, the law was about pointing us to grace. So, at the end of chapter 6, or 7, yeah, 6, there we go. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome 
eternal life. And then there's that passage we talked about the, um, the Roman road, 3, uh, 323, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, 3, excuse me, 623, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And there's an emphasis in the translation itself that um, is not really there in, in the, the Greek. The gift of God is eternal life. Because there is no such thing as a not free gift. Okay? By definition, if it's not free, it's not a gift. It can be all sorts of other things, but it's not a gift. So they're simply trying to emphasize what the nature of gift is, and that's why you get the double there. Now, after saying that, he says, or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law. Remember I said chapters ago, the Roman church is made up of the Gentiles and the Jews. So Paul is constantly kind of pulling them both in, referring to one group, referring to the other group. And because by the end of this, this letter, he's going to have pulled them and melded them uh, theologically. And so he does that literarily as well. So now he says, I'm speaking to those who know the law. Of course, that would be the Jews. All Jews knew the law, except those who were falling away. And there were such people, particularly as slaves, who were not raised in an area where they were allowed to participate in the synagogue. And remember, we're in Rome. There were far more slaves in Rome than there were non-slaves, so that was a common thing. So, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning her husband, or with regard to her husband. Okay? So everybody gets that, right? Uh, law today doesn't really mean that for us. Um, actually didn't for them either. When he said law, he's referring to the Mosaic law, but even the Mosaic law had a uh, provision for divorce. Now, did you notice who he referred to in there? This is a side note, but I found it interesting. Who's the, who is the example about? Verse 2. A married woman. Because both in the Roman culture and in the Jewish culture the married man was not necessarily bound by the law to his wife because they had the right to divorce the woman in those cultures the women had no right to divorce the man now in this law in the law that we live under of course it's both ways and so we can look at this and say, well, it breaks down. But under God's law, remember what Jesus said. What God has joined together, let no one separate. That's what Jesus himself said. And then when he was questioned about that, he said the only reason that the divorce passage was put into the law was because of the hardness of their hearts. Okay? That's not the, the ideal. So this, this comes out 
has a strong teaching on marriage, even though it's just an illustration, that marriage is to be to death. So the woman is bound until death. Okay? So then, if while her husband is living, she's joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. If, she's, if she has sex with another man while the guy's living, because remember, she's bound to him while he's alive, then she's an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she's not an adulteress, though she's joined to another man. Okay. Now, she may be immoral, by the way, or she may have married the other man. He doesn't specify. But what she's not is an adulteress, because he's gone. And the marriage covenant is broken by law, or excuse me, by death. The law of the marriage covenant is broken by death. Okay, then verse 4, because of that, therefore, my brothers, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. So this, this joining of the law is akin to marriage. For while we are in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So, there's been a death. And we're no longer, because of that death, we're no longer, or they're no longer. My ancestors were Gentiles, so they weren't in that anyway. They're no longer bound to the law. So they're free to unite with another. And in this case, the other, of course, is with Jesus. They've been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound. The interesting shift here is the woman is not free to marry another man if the covenant of marriage is broken by her death. Right? Think about it. If Donna and I are joined to each other and I die, Donna is now free, if she wishes, to go on Craigslist and find someone else. Isn't that where you find them? Okay, well, you're her friend. You can help her find some replacement for me. Make sure they're not dog people, please. Now, I'm just saying. But this says that we're free because we died. So there's a little twist there. Because Donna's free to marry another if I die. But is she free to marry another if she dies? I mean, doesn't that render the whole thing kind of moot? <laughs> of course it does, because we're stuck in this, see. But Paul is, is bringing it out of that and saying, no, we died, but we rose again, remember? And all that, con that discussion about baptism and rising in newness of life. So the new life applies to us, the dead one, now is free, no longer, if you will, married to the law. And is free now to join to faith. 
to grace, to the Lord. It's really an interesting picture that he paints. Okay, a couple of words real quick in there that, that were kind of fun. The, uh, 7.5 talks about the flesh. Um, anybody look up the word? Can you not whisper it? Sarks. Okay, in that particular place, Sarki, or Sarki, um, the ending being changed because of the position in the sentence. And it means what? Not a trick question. Okay. Some would translate it human nature. What else did you get? Carnal flesh. Same word. Carnal, carne, comes from the Latin for flesh. So, this. Which, of course, is human nature. Right? Because this is human flesh. So the picture is the flesh is the stuff of this world. Now, is the flesh bad? Is human nature bad? I would agree. Certain theologies would say, oh, yeah, but then I'm not tied to those. Um, but can human nature be bad? And can flesh be bad? So you're going to see this word used, and that's why I put it in here. You're going to see it used throughout the New Testament, and you're going to see it abused sometimes because instead of translating it, people are going to take an extra step and interpret it. So, for example, you will see it sometimes translated as sinful nature. But it's the same word. So that's an interpretation. That is the translators looking at that passage saying, here it's the negative part being emphasized. So they, they add that, not as a translation, but as a commentary. And we do need to be careful of that, because sometimes it's true and sometimes it's their bias. If, for example, they happen to be Calvinists, uh, Calvinists believe human nature is 100% bad. Total depravity. And by the way, I don't know many Calvinists that are truly Calvinists, but because when I question that, they go, oh, I don't believe that. Well, then you're not a Calvinist, but okay, we like labels. But there's times when it is. And then there's times when it's not only not bad, but it's good. For example, the word became sarks. Now, who in the world would translate the word became sinful nature? Of course not. We're not going to do that. So we've got to be careful about not only how we see it, but about allowing translators to interpret it for us, and we don't even end up looking it up. So whenever you see the word nature, sinful nature, human nature, um, you might want to look it up and find out, is that Sartre, or is that something else? If it's something else, that may be exactly what's being referred to. But if it's Sartre, well, that's an interpretation. And now we, are, we have to decide if we buy that interpretation uh, for the meaning of it in that context. We are released by the death. Um, that was an interesting word. Anybody want to try to say it? Okay, well, yeah, you've got the lexical form, and that's a lot easier. That was smart. Because it's in a passive, so in that passage it's karta. Cartier ye demon. 
Takir Yitiman. Takir Yitiman. But that Kartir or Kartar, that's the root meaning. Now, what is the root meaning? What does it mean? Okay, something is inactive, it is inoperable. Something is invalid. It's exhausted. Exhausted as in like a fire that no longer has fuel. Is exhausted. And then released. So released in this context carries with it the connotation that the reason for the release is there's no validity to the bond anymore. That the validity that used to be there for the bond no longer exists. It's a different word than, excuse me, the word used the vast majority of the time for release in the New Testament. So when that happens, usually it's pretty important. Okay. Let's see. Verse 7. Did that scroll thing again. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. Again, as that uh, it's a colloquialism for extreme no. <laughs> okay. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So you get what he's saying. In other words, the law is like a teacher. The law has helped us understand what this thing, sin, is actually about. And if I didn't have a law, I might not even know that. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, far apart, or far apart from the law, sin is dead. Now that's interesting. So, the law points him to sin. But then he says, sin did something specific. Sin, taking opportunity through the commandment. Sin used the law, used the commandment, and producing in me, he says, covening of every kind. So sin went way beyond. Now, hear how he's talking about sin. One of the questions is, what is Paul's view of sin from this passage? He is anthropomorphizing sin. Sin as though it had its own mind, had its own plan. See? It has power. It has intelligence. It's a being. And Paul's going to talk all the way through here about sin in that way. Sin is not a being. Does everybody understand that? A being. In other words, this is a figure of speech. You all know the, the anthropomorphize. Okay? It means to use a figure of speech in which you give a non-human uh, thing, or in this case a non-animate thing, characteristics of a human in order to illustrate a point. And Paul's going to do that because what he's doing is he's talking about sin as though it is a separate person. He's already done that in a way. We are in slavery to sin. So sin's a master. Well, you can't be a master if you're not an entity, a person, right? So he's just carrying that through. But here he says, apart from the law, sin is dead. So the law gives sin some life. 
without the law, it's dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, second time he said that phrase, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. So, we've got two entities. We've got the law, and we've got sin. Now, Paul seems to be putting down the law. He's just gotten through saying, in fact, that our death frees us from the law. Now, if we want to be freed from the law, that, that sounds like the law is a bad thing, right? And yet he says the law is holy and righteous and good. How come? Why? Why is it holy and righteous and good? Well, granted, but God gave them the marriage to the law, and he's thrilled with the death that frees from it. So the question becomes then, why did God give it? And whenever questions like that are asked, because they should be coming up in your head as you're reading this, you should be looking at that going, now wait a minute, (laughs) backtrack and see what he just said. Because in most cases, the answer is right there. I would not have come to no sin except through the law. Okay? Why is it a good thing for him to know sin? To understand sin? Okay. Is he saying that somebody who doesn't have the law, probably most of our ancestors, as his contemporaries, don't sin? No. Is there anybody here who sinned before knowing the law? I sure did. And, and I know lots of people who don't know the law today at all. And they're pretty good at sin. They do it a lot. So it's not when he says, come to know sin. It's not that he didn't understand sin or, or didn't know what sin was and therefore not, not sinning. It meant he didn't know what it was as bad as against God's command as earning us death. The wages of sin is death. When he says, I came to know sin, that's what he means. I came to understand. And without that understanding, we're doomed. But with that understanding, not only can we avoid sin in the future, but we can seek forgiveness for the sin we've already committed. So, all of a sudden, the law becomes a very good thing. Then the other entity is sin. He says, sin deceived me. Again, an anthropomorphism, of course. Sin is not an active agent. So, in this figure of speech, what does he mean when he says, 
sin deceived me. Well, let me ask it this way. Have any of you ever been deceived by sin in any way? You're willing to go there? Okay. I got one vote. Anybody else ever been deceived by sin? So how did that work? If you're willing. Okay. So sin, which manifests itself frequently, because he, remember he's gotten through talking about covening all those things, it's not an accident. We want something because we think it's good. We think it's going to be pleasurable, or maybe even we think it's just. But it's not. So we go after it. We fulfill it. And now we're stuck with the results of it. My sin... Well, my biggest sin in those years. Uh, okay, one of my big sins in those years, I'm not cataloging all of them, was anger. I've shared this before. So somebody would come after me, and sin deceived me. Because I thought it was right, even just, to tear that person apart. Any way I could. Why? Because they're coming after me. So they deserve it. It's just. Do you hear that? Just means good. Not just okay. It's good. But where I was going with that wasn't good at all. It was very bad. Greed, drugs, sex, pick a sin. It convinces us that if we just had that, it would be good. Or even in the heat of the moment, when we're not just thinking that clearly, it, it tempts us to respond because it's appropriate to respond that way. You know? And so even, even now, I, I haven't physically assaulted anybody in decades. You'll be happy to know that. Probably a good thing for my position. But there's other ways to assault. Right? So there's that temptation sometimes to really put someone in their place. There's that temptation when someone says something to come back at them and to believe that's just, that's good, because we're evening it, we're, we're balancing it, when all we're doing is multiplying their sin, joining them in their sin. Sin deceives us and kills us. Because the wages of sin is death. So, that's this one. Go ahead and write that, mark that up there. Does that make sense to everybody? None of this makes sense until you really dig into this whole anthropomorphizing thing that Paul's doing. And as soon as you get hold of that, then it sort of falls into place. Okay, therefore... Did that which is good because become a cause of death for me? 
Because he said, sin killed me, but I, I know sin because of the law. And the law is good. So was it the law that is a cause for death? Literally, by the way, is anybody reading in the New American Standard? Okay. A cause of, what does that look like? It's italicized. And what does that mean in the New American Standard? What? Correct. It is not in the Greek text. It is what's called an interpolation. So what it actually says is, therefore, did that which is good become death for me? That's pretty direct. <laughs> That's like in your face. May it never be. Says that again. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Is there anybody who really got that the first time? Because, I mean, it's very awkwardly worded, isn't it? And you, just, you have to really follow it. But think about it. Through the command that lets us know sin, understand sin, grasp the depths and the meaning of sin, sin becomes utterly sinful. In other words, sin is stripped of, of all that stuff that is deceiving and simply becomes wrong. So now with my sin, I can look at those situations and say, okay, the human in me likes the idea of getting back at someone. Right? But Jesus said that thing about turning the other cheek and never repaying evil for evil. And Okay. Because he's Jesus. He's God. So, the idea of getting back, the feeling good, is the deceit of sin. And now it's unmasked. And now instead of me being able to justify it and hold my head up and even in the church feel like I'm, I'm still good because after all, that was just and they deserved it. No, now I'm stuck with it is utterly sinful. It is just sin. No mask. No beautiful trappings. It's just wrong. And the law is what lets Paul understand that. And the law is what lets us understand it. Because remember, the law wasn't just a set of do all these things and maybe I'll be okay with you. They were capricious statements that God put out. The law was telling them how to live and there were good reasons for that. So when we look at the law and we look at our disobedience to the law, we need to go back and ask those good reasons because there's sin involved. Now, I'm not talking, by the way, about ceremonial law. I do not make sacrifices. I was never commanded to. Only Israel was. And they can't because there's no temple. So that's not what we're talking about. But we've all agreed that there are laws that still are in force, in force. We talked about that very early on in this class. Anybody here change your mind about murder being a bad thing? We're still together on that? Okay. Theft, are you still, still bat down on theft? All right. I need to take a poll every now and then because in the society, these things change, apparently. Yeah. Sometimes we do some job for it. Okay.
Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. Now remember that whole bondage thing, the slavery thing. We've talked about that before. So sold into bondage isn't captured. Now we're seeing the bond slave metaphor instead of the slavery metaphor. And the importance of that is bond slaves could be sold against their will under Jewish law. Why might they be sold against their will under Jewish law? What could justify it? Okay, it could be a sentence. And that was actually Roman law as well. What else could it be? All right. They didn't have any chapter 11. So you owe a debt. You are the payment of the debt. It's that simple. You can't pay the debt, no problem. You are the payment. And even, even if they were Jews, this wasn't just for foreigners in the, in the country, you then were sold into bondage to pay a debt. So I am a flesh sold into bondage of sin because I now owe a debt because I've sinned. And the debt, by the way, is what? Death. Now there's another form of that bondage in route to death. And that is what we've all experienced, and that is when we sin, we have a nasty habit of getting hooked on that sin. We continue that sin. We justify it. We sometimes nurture it and practice it as though it were our master, because it is. For what I'm doing, I do not understand. And this enters, then, the, the self-awareness and the self-disclosure of Paul. In my opinion, the passage that we're about to head into here is one of the most powerful passages short of the description of Jesus' work himself. Perhaps the most powerful. Because here's Paul, considered by most to be, if we, if we were to put a hierarchy of holiness together, and let's face it, humans do that, those people who do that would rank him right up there with Jesus. It's like Jesus, Peter, Paul, everybody else. And yet Paul says this about himself. Now, notice it's present tense. He doesn't say, this is what I used to be like. What I am doing, I do not understand. I'm not practicing what I would like to do. But I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want, I agree with the law, that the law is good. How am I doing that? Because the law says what I'm doing is wrong. And I don't want to do it. I'm doing it, but I'm agreeing within me it's bad, so I'm agreeing with the law. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. And here's where Paul takes his anthropomorphism to the ultimate uh, step. Paul talks about sin as though it is a whole separate entity taking him over. And in a way that's true. 
any of us who struggled with a sin that has been in our life for any period of time understand that that sin, it's like it takes us over. You sit back and decide you're not going to do that again. You're, you hate it. You don't like what it does to people. You don't like what it does to you. And the next thing you know, you're, you're doing it. You ever had that out-of-body experience kind of where you're looking at yourself as you're doing it going, what is going on here? And yet you're doing it. Personal opinion. This is metaphor. Now, I don't think it's just personal opinion because... Sin is not a creature. So that's how it is not being called to you that doesn't mean you do it kind of mentality where you can be the accountable thing. Correct. Correct. Because Paul would never have said that. But it feels like it the way he says this because it's like the devil didn't make me do it, sin made me do it. Exactly. And who is sin? In this. Yeah. It's Paul. He's going to say that. I mean, as we get further, he's owning his own wretchedness for this. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me. By the way, the willing is good. (laughs) So again, this is another figure of speech. This is hyperbole. And there's people who, who base whole doctrines on nothing is good in me, taking it literally, but the next sentence, he contradicts it, if it's literal. But nobody, by the way, takes the Bible literally. You know, we understand that, right? It's, it's full of figures of speech. But they're not hard to understand. They're, they're self-evident. So, sin is the one doing it. Nothing good in me. Because the willing is present in me, wait a minute, the willing is good, the willing to do good, but the doing of the good is not. So that's what he means when he says there's nothing good, because I'm not doing good, I keep sinning. By the way, is Paul doing any good? He's writing this. (laughs) The Holy Spirit is using him to write scripture. He's the most effective evangelist in history. God uses him to heal and to raise people from the dead to draw attention to the gospel. And he is by far the most influential teacher in how to live the Christian life. So does Paul do any good? Of course he does. We look back and we idolize the guy. I mean, even people who don't believe in such things refer to him frequently as St. Paul. Okay, and yet he says, there's no doing good in me. It's just not there. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I don't want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Now again, we frequently look at that and take that as an excuse. I think it's exactly the opposite. What Paul is saying is, I have so given myself to sin that the sin I've given myself to has taken over. I'm no longer in control of myself. Not because it conquered me, but because I gave myself to it. Because nowhere does he say that this was involuntary. 
Okay. Is it within all of this then that we so often use the word trust and human nature as the negative that we Oh, sure. And let's be real. There's a lot of negative to human nature. <laughs> I mean, my human nature, uh, not only the flesh itself, but what the flesh stands for, power. Yeah, being my own Lord. Rather than the inner part of the soul and mind of ourselves that is trying to make that right decision. And once that right decision, that we battle within ourselves. Right. Right. Because all the stuff about repentance and holy living that Paul's going to get into in the later chapters of this letter are absolute nonsense if we can't do it. But we can. But we can. But we can. We're about to see how. Well, I didn't say on our own, but we haven't gotten to that yet. See? Okay. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. So he kind of backs away from it a little bit. He says, okay, I've got a principle here. But it's not just principle. What is the word? Nomos, which means the law. Same word he's been using all through the letter. So... Why in the world would the New American Standard translators say, I find then the principle, instead of I find then the law? I, I believe it's a much better translation to say the law. I think he means principle, and the word nomos can mean principle as well as law, but Paul is not unaware of the wordplay he just did. If you read Paul's letters, he does this constantly. He was a, a, almost a magician in using different words in ways that, that tied to other words and made you understand what he was saying by the wordplay. So I find then the law that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. There's no argument there. Inside, deep inside, I'm going, yes. That's what I want, Lord. That's what is right. But I see a different law in the members of my body. Or a different principle, I suppose, if we're going to go with that. Okay? Waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. And he just described what probably every human being has experienced. Is there anybody here who has not struggled the temptation to sin and even in your mind you're saying I shouldn't do that that's bad, that's wrong you know young kids, I've asked young kids who have just done something totally stupid where's the Holy Spirit while you were doing that my daughter in, in probably her most rebellious little thing and I'll grant you most parents would love the level of rebellion I got from her because it wasn't that bad. But she did something that was pretty out there. And I asked her, where was the Holy Spirit when you did that? She's 15 years old. And she knew the Lord. You know what she said? Screaming in my ear. She was totally aware of it. See, the mind is saying no. Because we hear the Spirit. But the body is saying, oh yeah, oh yeah. You know? Again, 
Pick a, pick a sin. It doesn't matter which one. It's true for all of them. He says, I'm going to pick it up again with verse 23 to, to get the flow. But I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Now he just called the sin a law. A law of sin, which is in the parts of my body, my members. Wretched man that I am. I am not dramatic enough. I am not talented enough to communicate what Paul is actually saying here. He comes to this part. He's, he's being transparent to a degree he's never done in any other letter. And by the way, there's a group of people he doesn't even know. I mean, he knows a few of them, but he's never been to Rome. And yet, this is so important that he just, okay, I'm going to be real with you guys. And he, he, he just describes this struggle that everybody can understand with sin. And then exclaims, wretched man that I am. I am so messed up. I mean, you, you substitute whatever verbiage would describe how you would use that. But it is about the strongest you could use. That's what he's saying. And that's really important. Because he goes on and asks, who's going to set me free from the body of this death? See, body? Sarx? Okay. No, it's not the word sarx, but flesh. Of this death. How am I going to get free from this death? I've, I've sold myself to it. I'm enslaved by it. I'm overwhelmed by it. I argue with it, and it wins. And what's the next statement? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Summarizes chapter 7 in essence. And then, and here's where chapters will hurt us. Because we stop. He doesn't stop. <laughs> he's he's, he's had this giant emotional outburst. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Is that how you memorized it, if you've memorized it? You know how I memorized it? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's how I memorized it. Do you see the difference? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As opposed to what a wretch I am! Who's going to save me from this? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. It's the answer to his question. And there is more emotion in that than, than you can possibly imagine. And we absolutely train it before we even read the passage. Because we start with 8.1 as though there's no chapter 7. There's no anguish. There's no heartbreak. There's no feeling of being lost and hopeless until Jesus. There should be no chapter 8. <laughs> that should be chapter 7, verse 26, instead of 8.1. But it is 8.1. And by the way, back to the Roman road, for those of you who are looking at this, 
First, Romans 3.23. What does that say? Okay. So what's the bad news? All have sinned and fallen short of the uh, glory of God. What's the worst news? Yeah. Not only have you sinned and fallen short of God's glory, you're going to die because of that. And we're so (laughs) calloused to this. It blows me away. Everybody dies. Nobody says that when they're dying. I've been with people dying. Nobody says that when they're dying. Nobody says that when somebody they love is dying. It doesn't happen. Nobody says that when they're told they're going to die. But, Romans 8.1, the third leg, if you will, of the Roman road, the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Bad news. Worst news. Twist. There is some good news. That's the second part of 6.23. And then Romans 8.1, the real good news. That condemnation is gone. There is no condemnation. Why can I face death and not be afraid of what's going to happen. When I face death, I'm afraid of, di- of dying. Some, we've had that conversation, some of you. Um, I've experienced a fair amount of that process. It was not enjoyable. Do not want to do that again. The Lord and I have had a real hard talk about this, and I have begged him. Don't know if he's going to do it. But my plan is giant heart attack. Okay? Because I'm going to die sooner or later, Right? So I'm not saying today, by the way, not necessarily trying to speed it up. I'm just saying, when it comes, Lord, can we make it that? Because this one year of rotting away? Uh, no. Please. No. But it's not about death. And the reason it's not about death, death is not our friend. Don't misunderstand me. Death is a result of sin, the fall. It's never been God's plan. But God has overcome it. So the fear is not about death, because there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. This should be one of the most emotional statements any of us ever make, if we understand what it means. It is not something to be memorized word for word, monotone, as though it is disembodied from meaning in life. Is that hitting home? Because you guys are amazingly poker-faced right now. We could have a giant poker game right now and you would all win. Okay. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Okay? We've got these laws or principles, if you want to go that translation. Okay, but the one has set you free from the other. For what the law could not do Weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So now he he raises this walking according to the Spirit as a phrase describing those 
who are in Christ Jesus. He's established this set, to use mathematical terms. So those of us who are in that set, now, see, he separated us. We're different. Okay? And by the way, Patsy, this is right where you are going. Because, no, we can't do that. Our flesh is too weak. So God did what we can't do. And then allowed us to be part of those who benefit from it. Verse 5, for those of us, excuse me, for those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death. But the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Think about that. Not just life, as, as opposed to death. Peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do that. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Remember, this is the Pharisee saying, those who are in the flesh. Who is in the flesh? The ones who are still under the law. So the Pharisee, who's all about the law, is saying, the law is, is it's a dead end if you see it as the end. And this is the interesting thing. Paul, Paul never rejected the law. Neither did Jesus, remember? Sermon on the Mount. What did Jesus say about the law? Don't think I came to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. Not one joke, not one tittle of the law will be done away. So Jesus rejected the idea of setting the law aside. No, that's, you're not getting it. That's not what it's about. Paul rejects the idea of setting the law aside as though the law is bad. The law is what brings him to an understanding of sin and allows him then to accept grace and faith. So the law is good. Unless we see the law as the end itself. And then we're cooked. Because we can't please God that way. Is that making sense? Think about every other thing that you can imagine that is a gift God has given that's good. Can anybody think of a gift God has given that's good? Think of a gift that God has given that is good? Yeah. Eternal life. Eternal life. Okay, but we don't have that yet. I mean, we haven't experienced it past the body's death. So one that we have now. Okay. What do we do for peace? Is that how everybody tries to get peace? What if you're feeling in turmoil? Have you ever felt in turmoil? Hebrews 12, those people that, that the writer is talking about seem to be in turmoil. And the writer doesn't bail them out of that and say, no, 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 you should be experiencing peace now. What he says is, no, God's doing something in you now, and it's a good thing. Hang in there. It's unpleasant. But when it's fully accomplished, when it is, when you're fully trained by it, it produces righteousness and peace. See, that's the goal. So how many of us then, when we feel the lack of peace, 
start trying to do something to get it back right now. And we start doubting God. Or we start going overboard on different things because peace right now becomes God. How many of you have someone in your life you love? Right? Would you consider that a good gift? What if it looks like you're going to lose that person? What if it looks like you're going to lose that person? Do we think that? Yeah, we should, granted. But that's not what we do. We suffer anguish. We, we go through a grief process that just destroys us. And we want to hang on to that gift so bad that some of us will even scream out against God and accuse God of betraying us. How could you set me up this way to give me something and then take it away? Why? Why would we do that? Because, like the law, we make the gift the end. The gift's not the end. It's not what everything's about. By the way, in the Greek, end and fulfillment are, are the same concept. So when it's the end, it's the fulfillment of everything. No, it's not. I, I have been enormously blessed to have many people in my life that I love. But I have to admit, not one of them is the fulfillment. And I have to admit, I've tried to make some of them that. So you can imagine what Paul's struggling with. Because the law to him was that. So then, brothers, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption, as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, we all know what the word Father means, right? Right? Okay. Once again, poker faces, staring at me. What about Abba? Papa, Daddy, Dad, any others? Because I love what you're doing, because you're doing exactly what it is. We, depending on where you come from, there's a word that describes, for me it would be daddy. Or even dad, as they got older. You know? And come to think of it, I don't know that my kids have ever introduced me as their father. So they'll introduce me. I've, they introduce me all the time when I visit. This is my dad. And I just decided I really, really like that. Because it's different, isn't it? Abba is an Aramaic word that Paul puts in, because, of course, Aramaic is his true native tongue. And it is the familiar, the affectionate term for father. Some of us didn't have that. Some of us had the term, but not the relationship. 
this is this is a term for the relationship, and the daddy is God himself. And that's that's an astounding thing. The Spirit gives us adoption so that as his children we cry out with this affection and intimacy with the Father himself. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. And and I don't believe that suffering, by the way, it means, okay, so we've got to be martyrs or we've got to go out somehow and make people hate us. And, uh, you know, I've seen people do that. I were a people who did that. That was, in the Jesus movement, that was, you're almost expected to do that. Now, suffering is, is just going through this curse and, and remaining faithful to the extent that he's still Abba. doesn't mean remaining faithful so that we don't sin, because it's too late, but remaining faithful to him in that relationship. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And by the way, Paul really did have all those sufferings, I mean both kinds, the martyr kind as well as just the normal kind we all endure. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. Notice how he goes from childbirth to adoption. So he he ties those together. The redemption of our body. So what is waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. What is Paul referring to? What is the redemption of our body? The resurrection. If you read Paul carefully, you'll find that throughout all of his letters, Paul doesn't talk about salvation as having been done. He talks about it as having been started, as a process. Because... He still has to die, unless the Lord comes back first, just as we have to die. But the Spirit has been given as a down payment, as a deposit, as an encouragement, that that's not the end. So the redemption of our bodies, that's when the gospel has been totally fulfilled. Does that make sense? All right, now, there's a question. Uh, I'm going to come back and, and start with verse 23 for flow. But there's a, a question about um, the creation groaning. What does that mean? So how, how, first of all, is the creation groaning? And what is it looking forward to? Okay. Would everybody here agree that the creation has imperfections? Right? Now, groaning. 
What's he doing? What figure of speech is this? Anthropomorphizing. For those of you who in the Greek class remember the word anthropos. Anthropology. It means human. So anthropomorph. To change something into human. That's what an anthropomorphism is. Is a saying that, in at least the way I'm talking, changes this which is not human into human. You know? So uh, you, you get up and the chair snaps at you and hurts your, your foot. And I say, well, that chair doesn't really like you, does it? Right? I and mean, we, we talk like that. Nobody thinks the chair likes or dislikes. But we're changing it into human the way we talk. Creation itself. Creation is not a person. So it doesn't groan as a person. But it does groan. Earthquakes, floods, fires, hurricanes, tornadoes. Yeah. And Mother Nature is whacked out. How did Mother Nature get whacked out? Mother Nature sinned? Oh, that's right. Mother Nature is anthropomorphized, so she can't sin. When we sinned, creation itself became part of the curse. God says, you will earn or, or, or gain your food by the sweat of your brow. You'll have to dig You'll have to scratch it out of the earth. That wasn't the idea. That wasn't the plan. And I don't believe for a second, and I grant you it's personal opinion, but show me anything in Scripture that goes the other direction, that a tornado or a tsunami or a wildfire or a volcano blowing up or an earthquake or all of these things that have the capacity, even with our technology, to kill tens or hundreds of thousands of people. I don't believe for a second that any of these things are God's plan. But they are here. It's a creation. It's groaning. But the groan isn't a groan of pain because it's, it's suffering and, and it's just wanting to be changed. The context was giving child, giving birth. Remember? But then he says the same thing about him groaning for his own adoption. So that the adoption would be realized like a birth happening. So in his metaphor where he compares adoption and birth, what would end the labor, Paul's labor, if you can use that term, um, of adoption, what ends it with the new baby? We just talked about it. Okay, and what's the new life? The resurrection. The new body. So, with the creation, it's groaning in childbirth. Now, when the birth happens, when is that? What is that? Absolutely, but when is it? When does that happen? For the whole creation, not just for me. 
comes back, he has said he will uh, he'll destroy, but recreate a new heaven, a new earth, and this one not corrupted. That's when it happens. That's the baby being born that ends the groaning of childbirth. And until then, creation is like a woman in labor. And it's, it's suffering, it's screaming, and it's waiting, but not just as, a, as an ongoing pain like somebody with a, an open wound that won't heal. There is an end to it. And the end is the birth. By the way, does that have any application to today? All that groaning stuff of creation. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody asked me the other day, and I do believe I was being tested. So what about all this North Korea thing? What do you think? That's all it said. So I had to kind of read in the rest. I don't know. They could have been talking about sneakers being made in North Korea, but pretty sure that's not what they were talking about. If you're not following the news, North Korea has at least a limited nuclear arsenal. only takes one to do a whole lot of ugly. Right? Seoul is what, 25 miles from the border of North Korea? Millions and millions and millions of people. And by all accounts, the guy who has the ability to make that missile its soul is an absolute wacko, total crazy person. I mean, I think other people are crazy from time to time, but this guy, I think, is literally insane. Shows every mark of it. Anybody scared about that? Yeah, if you're not paying attention, <laughs> if, you're, if you're not scared, I don't think you're paying attention. But here's the cool thing, and this is what I was able to answer in the context of what the question was. I am not afraid of a nuclear holocaust for the simple reason that God in Scripture reserves the destruction of the earth to himself. Now, mind you, I'm one of the guys who grew up diving under my desk. And until I went to college at 18, I had never lived anywhere more than a few months that wasn't a first strike location. By six years old, I knew that if the war that everybody was pretty sure was going to happen, happened, I would become vapor like that. Everywhere I was, because we were always stationed at a military base, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, we were at the closest bomber base the United States has to Cuba. You think I would have survived that? Yeah, sure, dive under your desk. I'll take care of it. What they taught us, and we're looking at each other like, really? And for most of my life growing up, that was this giant shadow hanging over us. In high school, I struggled with it. It was a big deal. We were in Vietnam. The people feeding arms to the north also had the ability to destroy the world with nuclear weapons. So nobody wanted to see it go too, you know, everybody was afraid it was going to go a little too far, and somebody, like this person over in North Korea, maybe, 
would do the wrong thing, and the next thing you know, the world's destroyed. How many apocalyptic movies have you seen on that premise? Unbelievable. And then I came to the Lord, and then something hit me. If that happens, none of the stuff in those movies is real. Because God reserves the destruction of the planet for himself. Now, here's what scares me. He lets us do a whole lot of damage without destroying the planet. I think he would allow a limited nuclear war. Hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people dying and destroying economies and destroying peace altogether. That scares me because we've done it before. Not with the technology we've got now, but in more brutal ways. We've done it before. And he let us do it. I don't believe he wanted us doing it, but he let us do it. So this North Korea thing scares me, but not because it could be a nuclear holocaust in, in the world. That would be good news, but because it might not. And then we have to deal with the result of that. That's what ought to be scaring everybody right now, is living with the result of a limited nuclear strike. It's very, very relevant to today. Not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen isn't hope. We haven't seen it yet, is what he's saying. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we will we wait eagerly for it. Now, verse 26, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. We do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints. Saints? What's it mean? It means what? Well, that's what happens to them, but what does it mean? Agios. Holy ones. Okay? Now, the, the nature of holy means set apart, cleaned up for the exclusive use of God. Yes. But it means holy. And it means us. Okay? It's extremely important for us to keep reminding ourselves of that. He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, we, we have something there that, again, there's a lot of people who have built a whole theology around. How exactly does the Spirit intercede for us with groanings too deep for words? I'm, that's a trick question. So rather than suck you in, and because there is limited time, we'll, we'll spend as much time debriefing uh, next week on this if you'd like, or I'll stay around a little while. But the answer is simple. We don't know. It's the whole point. The Spirit's doing something we don't see, we don't grasp, we don't understand. That's what the Spirit does, by the way. <laughs> he does, because the Spirit is God. He does things we don't see, grasp, or understand. And so when we're trying to communicate with God, and we can't find the words, whether it's out of our mouths or in our thoughts to God, what happens? The Spirit indwells us. God is reading our hearts. 
He didn't need a translator. He didn't need us to become eloquent and come up with the right words. Because he knows what we're saying. He knows what's in our hearts because the Spirit intercedes. We've got to be careful because we tend to see the Spirit as though it's not God. We make a major error there. When we know that God causes, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28, famous verse. But be careful because you, you better read what it actually said. He does not say all things are good. He does not say he will make things good. He says he will make them work together for good. In other words, God takes all sorts of evil and uses it for good. But the very fact that he takes all the evil means he lets the evil happen. So for those of us who are saying God's not going to let that happen, whoa. Anytime somebody says, I just know God's not going to let that happen, that scares me silly. Because he does. Because we are still under the curse. He has not lifted it yet. He will. But he hasn't yet. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You got a nice little progression here. Again, to kind of cut to the core of it, there's two ways of seeing this. One of them is a deterministic way. There's ten of us in here. I'm sorry, the math thing is just not my thing. There's ten of us in here. So there's some of those ten that God has said they're in. He's predestined them. He's going to call them. He's going to glorify them. They're in. On the other hand, the rest, he hasn't. Doesn't matter that you're here. Doesn't matter what you say, what you do. You're out. Because God hasn't said you're in. This is classic predestination argument, classic Calvinism. And again, I don't know many people who actually believe classic Calvinism. Okay? But here's another way of seeing it, and it's what I happen personally to believe is being said. God foreknew. Now, God is not bound by time as we are, so God knows what we're going to do. Does that mean he makes me do it? Uh, on, on a very limited scale, we can see this with kids. I can predict what kids do. I, I can see it with adults a lot. I work with adults in counseling situations all the time. And there's times I just sit back and I, just, I talk to the Lord. Lord, I know what they're going to do. <laughs> Lord, I can see it happening because the fact that I'm not in that situation with them gives me enough objectivity that with a little experience, it doesn't take much to see it. Well, God is God. He's got way more than that, and he's not bound by time. So he sees what we're doing. I don't make those counseling clients do something bad any more than I make my children misbehave when I'm looking at them saying, uh-oh, <laughs> I can see it coming. And sure enough, they do exactly what I think they're going to do. Anybody here a parent who does not know that particular? Okay, so I thought. So... When we say God foreknew us, it does not mean that he said, you're in and you're out. But he predestined us to become conformed to the image of his son. 
doesn't say he predestined us to accept him, to be, to be saved, to be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, he's doing something there, and he's, he's always made it. Those of us who would respond to the gospel are going to have that. And those whom he predestined, he called. By the way, who did he call? Hmm. He literally called everyone. But not everyone responds. So the church literally are those who are called out. Ecclesia, from the verb ekaleo, call out. Ecclesia, those who were called out. So those, when the announcement's made that this is how you can be saved, and those who said, I'm all for that, and they come out, become ecclesia. And those who say, forget that, I'll do whatever I want, I'm my own Lord, they're not. And God predestined that. In other words, he predestined the group who would respond to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those who would not, not to be. And that is a reality. It's one of the saddest things today is that even people in the church tend to not believe that reality. Okay, I'll, I'll go on unless someone's got questions on that because, you know what, I'm actually going to stop. And for those who will not be here next week, I apologize, but it will be recorded. Because uh, we're at first 31, we're almost done, but we're also three minutes over time. So rather than take 10 or 15 over, I'm going to go ahead and stop it. We will finish this fairly quickly next week and then do this, which is chapters 9 and 10. Okay. So here, if you would send those around, I'd appreciate it. All right. Thank you guys for being here. I apologize for that three-minute overrun, and hope you all have a great night.